Hi, I'm Christine Griffin, and y'all listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley, Director at Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org. The labor force participation rate for people with disabilities remains stubbornly low in the United States. In December 2021, for instance, only 22.3% of people with disabilities were active in the workforce. Additionally, the unemployment rate for people with disabilities is historically twice the unemployment rate for people who do not identify as having a disability. Today, to discuss employment for people with disabilities, we welcome Christine Griffin. She's a senior executive search consultant with Bender Consulting Services Incorporated. Our host today is Dr. Peter Blank, university professor and chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute. Today, we'll focus on topics of what can be done to improve employment outcomes for people with disabilities, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. We'll also discuss the next generation of leaders in disability and employment. So Christine, welcome to the show and Peter, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Barry and Chris, Christine. It's a such an honor and pleasure to be with one of my heroes in this disability rights movement. We've known each other for too long, and uh, we're going to cover some ground that's low-hanging fruit for you today, Chris. But uh-huh. you, you're, a, you're a lawyer. You're a former deputy director at uh, Office of Personnel Management. You were an EEOC commissioner. If I may, because I've never asked you this, start back when, when you were a teenager or a young girl, did you ever think your life would take this course, this path? Did you ever think you would become a civil rights champion? Not in your life. I never thought of it one bit. As a matter of fact, I went to school. I I went into the, the United States Army after not long after high school got the GI Bill so I could afford to go to college. I grew up in a big family uh, of seven and my parents really didn't have the money to send us to college. And I I went to college, got a degree in marine engineering and worked as an engineer for the Food and Drug Administration. When I went to law school, I was a woman with a disability already for 10 years and I knew nothing about disability rights law. I went as an engineer, but thinking I would probably pursue a career in food and drug law enforcement or possibly patent law. Um, it was 1990 when I started law school and it wasn't until I got to law school that I learned there was this body of law, the Rehab Act. The ADA was just passing and everyone was talking about it that I, I realized that there was something behind Whenever I, in the workplace or somewhere else, felt like I was being dealt with unfairly based on my disability, I would just say, I don't think that's fair. 
And that would get such a reaction. I thought I was a fabulous self-advocate for myself. And what I realized is that many years later is that people understood that there was a body of law, that there was, you know, a, a, an appeal or a complaint process when you didn't think, think things were fair in the workplace. And yet I didn't know anything about it. So here I go off to law school. I learn about the Rehab Act. The ADA had just passed. Everyone was talking about it. And I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. My first summer job, I get into the ADA network training put on by EEOC and DOJ. I don't know if you remember this or not, but they trained 400 people with disabilities from across the country, then invited 100 of us back for more advanced training. And frankly, Peter, that training changed my life and changed my career focus. I, I remember going through the training and did the first phase in D.C., and calling my boyfriend at the time, who became my husband, calling Philip and saying, hey, you know that idea about me going to law school and making lots of money? And he said, yeah. And I said, mm, I think that just went out the window. <laughs> I think I'm going to be doing public interest law. And thankfully, he thought it was great. And that's what I went on to do. Uh, so you were the first generation. You started law school when the ADA was passed, literally. Exactly. The same year. Yep. When you went into these trainings with DOJ and EOC, who were some of the folks you were meeting that today are your oh colleagues? My, everybody. I mean, I met all the people from Dredif. I met, you know, Liz Savage. I met Liz Savage had a big impact on, on my training and on my career. Becky Ogle. I can, re I can still see Becky Ogle coming into the room at the time. She had long blonde hair. There were all these like famous advocates. I didn't know they were famous advocates at the time, but I got to know them. I think Judy Human showed up for part of the training. I think I, I, it was just the people who were at DOJ at the time. They Dick Thornburg. This was when you think about the the two agencies getting together and deciding to do this type of a training, investing in advocates all over the country. It's just amazing. And I always wanted to see it replicated and, and done multiple times, but no one's ever really done it. And uh, that was just amazing. And you wanna know how I get into that training? I had my first summer job out of law school and I was working for Tom O'Neill, Tip O'Neill's son, who had a lobbying uh, practice in Boston. And I was working for him and he said to me, I'm hiring you this summer. I want you to find out everything you can about this new law and how it's going to impact my clients once it becomes effective. And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And he got this training. I found out that this training was going to be happening and you couldn't get in. It was already filled and they were really adamant. Nope, nope. And besides, I, was, I wasn't an advocate. I didn't have a background in disability advocacy. I just happened to be a person with a disability. And he called Kennedy's office and Kennedy's folks, I don't know what they did, but they got me into that training. And it really changed my life. And, and you know, all the work I've done since then, um, I, I probably wouldn't have done it if that didn't happen. And you know, so it's very interesting, Chris. In 1990, I was a young lawyer. I had just finished a clerkship. I was doing empirical work in this area, primarily in mental health. And I took a job at a law firm called Covington and Burling, a big old law firm in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Yeah. The moment, the moment I got there in 1990, they said, our clients want to know about this new thing, this disability. Yeah. Yeah. 
disability law, get up to the hill and tell us what's going on. And then at, like you, all of a sudden you become the expert at the place. Now I know we're going to talk about employment today, but we have to have some sort of baseline because everybody says, which I disagree with, that in many ways the ADA has not fulfilled its expectations to increase the employment of people with disabilities. Of course, that's a very complicated question yeah. that's tied to many things. But what would, when you were with those group of people and early on, what were the aspirations? Did you believe that this was going to solve many of the evils or were you oh, more yeah. realistic? Yeah, right. I drank the Kool-Aid, Peter. <laughs> I really, I was so excited. I thought this was going to just really change everything. You know, at that time, even though I didn't know, you know, I didn't know employment law or anything like that yet. What I did know is that when I was in the workforce working, and I had been for quite some time before I went to law school, I knew that working side by side with people without disabilities who were probably nervous when I first started, but once I proved that I could do the job as well as they could, that they accepted you and the, and the disability disappeared. Not entirely, but for the most part, it really did. People feeling uncomfortable around you and not knowing what to say or do, all of that really disappeared. And I never saw that happen in school or other places entirely, but I saw it happen in the workplace. So I went into this training knowing that the workplace was really, really an important place for people with disabilities to be. And I really believe that if we could get into the workplace in a huge number, um, and I still believe this, I think we would change society's views overall and, and we would be more accepted. So I was very excited when I, when I started learning about this new law and I, that's, I remember calling Phil and saying, I want to be a part of this evolution of new law that's really going to change how people feel about people with disabilities overall. I really believed it. And it has happened to some degree, Peter. I agree with you. It's, it's not, it wasn't a total loss. It hasn't panned out exactly the way we thought. So when, Chris, did you begin to appreciate or realize with your cohort that is a little more complicated than we thought. And this employment issue is something that we're going to have to take a harder look at even beyond yeah. the ADA. Well, I think when I got to, I got a fellowship out of law school, a Skadden fellowship, and I proposed this project to the Disability Law Center, who was a nonprofit in Boston doing disability rights law, um, really the only one. And I propose that I do outreach to underserved communities to teach them the, about the ADA. I thought I was smart and I went to law school and I didn't know anything about disability rights law. The average person isn't gonna know either, but you know, and the average person with a disability isn't gonna know that they have rights. And I wanted everyone to know about it. I went to the law center and I had a supervisor there who did a lot of employment uh, discrimination work based on disability. And so she became my mentor as well as my supervisor. And what I learned, you know, from her, you know, hiring cases are, you know, almost impossible. Unless you have a smoking gun where someone says, we're not hiring you because of, you know, you're a woman, you're black, you have a disability, whatever it is. Unless you have that smoking gun, it's very difficult to prove they didn't hire you based on 
whatever um, the issue, you know, is that you're claiming discrimination of. So I learned that. So I learned tackling this from a hiring point of view is going to be very difficult. But what I also learned and where I think we've been very, very successful, and there's no way of quantifying this, and I wish we had thought about this from the beginning, is I think we have kept people employed that otherwise wouldn't have been employed because they got an accommodation and could stay in the workplace. That was much easier to prove, you know, whether it was through litigation, negotiation, or anything like that. Employers started to really embrace, and I wouldn't say embrace, they didn't love it, but they, they got to understand that they had to start providing accommodations for people. And so the average person who probably didn't think they had a disability, but now had some rights because um, the ADA was passed. So someone with diabetes, someone with epilepsy, someone you know who had a disability and was working along for years but then all of a sudden had an issue, whether they needed to take a break to you know, eat something at a certain time because of their diabetes or whether they you know, needed uh, time off to go to a doctor's appointment because they had cancer or they were getting chemotherapy. All of a sudden, now they were getting these accommodations. You know, years before that, not many years before that, they would have been fired. They would have been told outright, sorry, you have this condition and it's interfering with your work and you, you know, we're going to fight you. You had no protection. So I think what we, what has happened is we have kept, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you a number. I'd like to say millions of people employed because they got accommodations for their disability. And I think that's where we've been successful. And we just haven't been able to quantify it because not all of it is litigated, not all of it is complained about. In fact, I think the majority of it happens. I think people ask for an accommodation and if it's reasonable, the employer provides it because they know they have to. I tend to agree with the movie. It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies, you know, with uh, George Bailey sees what life would be like without him being alive. And I, I always ask the question, what would America be like if there had been no ADA? I think it would be pretty bleak. You know, we all are dealing with the high aspirations for employment, which was a bit of an overstatement because of the complicated nature of benefits and workforce Mm -hmm. issues beyond disability. You were deputy director of Office of Personnel Management, OPM. Was Mm -hmm. that before you were at the EEOC? I went to EEOC first as an attorney advisor for Paul Igasaki, who was the vice chair under Clinton. When was that? So that was in the mid-90s? Yep, that was after my fellowship, and it was in the mid-90s. And then I went back to Massachusetts um, when the the director job for the Disability Law Center opened up, and a couple of people called me and said, you should apply. And I decided, yeah, that's a great idea. I'd get some management experience. And I went back to Massachusetts as director of the Disability Law Center. And after I was there as director for about 10 years, Andy Imperato called me and he said, oh, my God, Paul Miller's leaving EEOC. You should really think about, you know, becoming a commissioner. And at first I, I really I said, no, no, I like what I'm doing. I love my job. And but then we talked about it a few more times. And then I talked to Senator Kennedy about it. And 
we decided this was a, a good career move for me, but also good for the community. Then I went back as commissioner. So I go to OPM until Obama was um, elected. But before, and, we, before we get to the EOC years, you know, Tom Harkin was one of my mentors from being in Iowa. Yeah. Kennedy obviously was yours. Yes. Yeah. What do you want to say about uh, Edward Kennedy br- briefly and how he influenced the disability movement in the 90s? And I want to turn back to the EOC. He was amazing. I don't think most people realize what he did. Not only everybody, poor people in general, but for people with disabilities. I mean, he just got it. He got that we wanted to be included. He, he, he never treated anyone with a disability any different than he would have treated some CEO of a company coming into his office. He was just like that. I, and, and I find a lot of people in his family are like that. Um, he was just an amazing, amazing guy. And he did so much for this community from little things on benefits to you know, the passage of the ADA you know, he was in there fighting for this tooth and nail with Harkin and with some other folks. I, I just can't, I, I can't say enough about what he's done for me personally and what he's done for the community. By the way, for the folks listening to your Boston accent, I had a case, I think it was in Boston at one point, and the judge walked in. It was a very cold day. And he said, I'm leaving my scarf on. And all of us, <laughs> All of us looked around and was, well, what was that? Some sort of a light or something? <laughs> and then he pointed to his scarf. That's so funny. You got to the EOC. Yeah. And even though in the 90s we had Bragdon and Olmstead soon after, oh. the 90s wasn't a particularly friendly Supreme Court time to the EOC. It was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> what, what was going on inside the EOC? Peter, it was so interesting. You had um, Peggy who was head of legal counsel, Peggy Mastriani. Oh, yes, she yes. Was, she was head of the legal counsel um, department at EEOC. And so there were just tons of meetings. I remember sitting in Commissioner Miller's office because I was the disability person from the vice chair's office. I went to all these great meetings where I learned so much. And we would sit in his office, and of course, I'd go in with my Boston accent and say, hey, Commissioner Mella, how are you? (laughs) And and he would laugh and make fun of me. Uh, But we would sit in his office, and we would talk about all these cases. I mean, we were literally watching at that time uh, these cases in the lower courts really undermining the, the very intent of the law. And we were scared to death. And of course, as these cases wound their way up to the Supreme Court, it was like, I remember someone saying this. It was a friend of mine. She said, it's like watching a car being stripped on the side of the road. Every time you go by, there's another piece taken. The hubcap's gone. The wheel's gone. This is gone. These are cases like the Sutton Trilogy. Yes, exactly. Toyota. Toyota, Sutton, United Airlines, although some of them arguably never should have got up to the Supreme Court, but they did, and they made bad law. And I, I uh, was privileged to represent Dick Thornburg, Governor Thornburg, Attorney General Thornburg in the Supreme Court in the Chevron v. Chazabal case. Ah. And uh, that case involved uh, um, a problem that the EOC had put on itself, we can talk about it, with regard to interpreting the direct threat provision that it included yes, threat yes. to self. Yep. And long story short, uh, Justice Kennedy, who was an otherwise 
uh, thoughtful justice, I thought, said at the oral argument, you mean that employers are supposed to hire suicidal employees? You know, uh. we thought to ourselves, yeah, everybody with a disability is suicidal and lost nine nothing on the grounds that yeah. uh, the direct threat defense in employment was was broad enough to include not only threat to others, but threat to self. So how long were you on the EEOC as a commissioner? Um, EEOC as a commission, I was there from 2006 to 2010. And what, what would you say were your the achievements you're most proud of? Of course, you had the ADA Amendments Act in 2008, which well, did some of right. that, that problematic that, stuff. What, what were you proud yeah. of? I think, you know, what I was most proud of was my work that I did on federal employment of people with disabilities. I think I raised the level of awareness around that issue to actually to such a height that when Obama was elected, people from his administration called me and said, okay, big mouth, you've said all the problems related to employment of people with disabilities in the federal workforce and diversity and inclusion problems are all can be fixed at OPM. How would you like to go over and fix them? So I certainly talked a lot about it. It was, I was mostly under the Bush administration. Um, so while that rendered you as a democratic commissioner somewhat powerless, uh, it did give you still a, a soapbox to stand on and, and talk about things. I gotta tell you, I went to the EEOC as a commissioner with a very different ideas in my head about what I was gonna accomplish. I, here's what I was gonna do. I was going to get to the EEOC and I was gonna find a way to, probably I would have to do it through Congress, but I was gonna change the definition uh, of individuals with disabilities who were employed in sheltered workshops or under 14C that were making subminimum wage. I wanted to change their title from uh, trainee to employee so that EEOC could then consider them employees because probably they couldn't. And so that was my goal when I got there. That was my, I was gonna, I was gonna end sheltered workshops. <laughs> Single-handedly. Well, you, you started the, the, the movement in that regard. Then when I got there, when you get there as commissioner, every different, every head of every department comes and briefs you on what's going on. And I remember the guy who headed up the federal, federal um, side of the house coming in and I said something like, well, the federal government's a good employer of people with disabilities, Right. And he looked at me and he said, where did you get that idea? I don't know why I thought that they were, were better than most. What I learned was they were terrible. And so I just sat there. I remember sitting at my conference table with my staff and saying, look, we shouldn't be telling private employers what to do until we get our own act together. We should figure this out. We should figure out how do we get people in, into the workforce in a significant way and accommodate them and make sure everything's done the way it should be according to the law. And then we can actually, we can be the model employer for private employers. So that's what started this whole effort and we called it LEAD, Leadership for Employment of Americans with Disabilities. On behalf of ADA Live on our listening audience, if, if the listening audience has any questions for Chris or about this topic, um, Please submit your questions online at www.adalive.org. 
or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. And now a word from this episode's sponsor. Headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated operates across the United States and in Canada. Bender believes that all people with disabilities should have access to freedom through competitive employment. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services has been at the epicenter of disability diversity, equity and inclusion, growth and innovation. Bender provides disability employment expertise in the areas of recruitment, workplace mentoring, strategic planning, training, and digital accessibility. Bender is a small business, a certified woman-owned business, and a certified disability-owned business enterprise. To learn more, visit their website at BenderConsult.com. Welcome back. I have the delightful privilege of talking with Chris Griffin, who's a senior executive search consultant at Bender Consulting Services, Inc., probably among the premier disability-led and run organizations of its kind. Um, We've been talking with Chris, who's been in various positions, and uh, we were talking about your years at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and now we're at the point where while you're at the EOC, the ADA Amendments Act has passed. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. What finger did Uh, you have on that little initiative? That was very interesting. So while we were sitting commissioners, we were not allowed to engage in discussions and the negotiation that were going on regarding this law. So, you know, I was hearing from my friends and from people that were working on it. And it was so exciting, Peter. I think you remember that. The fact that we were going to be able to fix the actual definition of disability that had been stripped away by the Supreme Court, we were going to be able to fix that was so exciting. It was palpable. And gets passed and everyone's excited. And of course, prior to that, everyone was so afraid to even let this be opened up because they thought, you know, there'd be all these changes to the ADA that would be negative. When in fact, that's not what happened. It was all positive And it was just really a great restoration of what the intent of the law was. And you originally. probably worked with and saw many of those same people that you started out in 1990 at those at training classes. Exactly, exactly. It, it just was, was great to get that done. But once it got done, then it was left to agencies to start writing the regulations. And you know the regulations are what everyone uses to interpret what the law said. We were again, we were under a different administration. There was a lot of pressure to um, write something that wasn't exactly what the intent of this law was. I remember having a lot of discussions with people in the different departments at EEOC, what to write, how to write it. I spearheaded a group that was writing the regulations. I believed at the time that we should stop writing regulations that leave too much open to interpretation. I liked what the the regulations for the Family Medical Leave Act out of Department of Labor did, which gave examples of things within the regulations. I thought they were very well written and easy to follow. And so it was going to be, I, I wanted to make it difficult for some judge to interpret this the way he felt it should be. 
I wanted it to be interpreted the way the law was written and what the intent was by the people that wrote the ADA Amendments Act. When you went to OPM, so were you doing very different things? Obviously, you're in a different yes, role. Yes. So what, what did you see was, as your main mission there? What was your main objective there? My main objective there was to actually, there were two things. One was to um, increase the hiring of people with disabilities in the federal government. And the other thing was to establish for the first time ever an office of diversity and inclusion at OPM. I mean, can you believe that up until that point in time, there was no central diversity and inclusion office or direction coming from the federal government. Every agency was left to their own devices. They either had an office and they addressed diversity and inclusion or they didn't. Some didn't care, some cared a lot and did a great job. You know, I remember NASA did a fabulous job on diversity and inclusion without anyone forcing them to do it. You learned that, and I learned this at the EEOC too, you, you got to know what agencies were very good and which ones weren't. So my goal was to, to get over there and ultimately get executive orders signed by the president that would increase the employment of people with disabilities in the federal government and that would embrace and anoint an office of diversity and inclusion that, that the other agencies would have to be accountable to at OPM. I did both of those. In the interest of time, and we could go on all day, I'm having yeah, we a could. conversation over coffee with my dear colleague. Let's skip a few years. We're in a pandemic. The employment rate hasn't really moved. Yeah. If anything, it's different than it was with all the mm -hmm. hybrid work and the telework and so forth, questions of hiring and so forth. You're just appointed now, hypothetically, in this Biden administration in a senior position. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them? I'm going to look at the federal workforce and, and start really, you know, working again on telework. Telework for me is the silver lining in the COVID saga for people with disabilities. I really believe this is, you know, the first time that we realized everyone, almost everyone can work from home. Not everyone, but almost everyone can. And that includes people with disabilities. So I would look at that. I would look at the federal workforce and then for the private sector, I would look at, at incentivizing private sector employers to hire people with disabilities. I would incentivize them by figuring out what made sense, but we spend a lot of money in this country on policy and studying of various aspects of employment of people with disabilities. And I'd like to take a percentage of that money and actually use it to give to employers to hire a person with a disability, bring them on board, let them telework as an accommodation if that's what they need to do uh, and if that's what they can do for that particular job and have some sort of an arrangement with the employer where after six months or a year of that person uh, being great uh, as an employee, that are satisfactory as an employee, whatever the standard is for all your employees, that you then hire them permanently and you keep them on board. And I, I really believe that would be a great use of funding in this country and it would speed up the process of hiring people with disabilities. So our institute with Harvard and Rutgers have been, has, was very fortunate to get two national centers, they're called Research Rehabilitation and Training Centers, basically on the future of employment policy 
and practice for people with disabilities. One of my colleagues, a really fine economist at Rutgers, Doug Crudes, just did a study for us. And he found that, interestingly, although telework improved, you know, working from home for everybody, mm -hmm. people with disabilities lagged overall because mo there's a higher proportion of people with disabilities working in jobs that are not capable of telecommuting, um, yeah, yeah. like service jobs and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So we have to move backwards still a bit even further towards, I guess, education and training and apprenticeship. Why hasn't that taken off and we still have this, um, this lag? Is it, does it even go back further really to uh, inclusivity and educational programming? Well, I think to some degree it does, but I think we've done a pretty good job in this country on the education forefront of people with disabilities. And I think we, where we really fail them is that after they finish, let's say high school, everything stops. We don't have internships for, for kids with disabilities. We don't have the practical opportunities that we provide for everybody else that's, that we expect to go into the workforce. Our expectations are so low of people with disabilities in this country, it's staggering. This is why people with disabilities aren't getting jobs. It's everything from their own parents and their own families saying, oh, you have a disability, you can't work, to their teachers saying it, to society saying it to them, because when they try and get a job, we're not going to give you one. And so I, I think we've actually done a pretty good job at educating people, and we fail them when, when high school ends. Getting them to go on to college, I think we, we've done a great job of uh, including people with disabilities in colleges and universities, and, and you know Syracuse is a perfect example of that in accommodating them and making sure that they get the education that they deserve, but also getting the education in the, the manner by which they can learn. And I think we've done a good job of that, and yet they get out of college, and guess what? Again, that brick wall. It's, it's terrible. Social security plays into this. This is another aspect um, that we haven't really talked about, but benefits, things that come with benefits like health care and you know, people are afraid to give that up. If they go to work, they, they might be in a position where you don't make a great amount of money and now you've lost your access to health care. So there's a lot of scary factors and, and things that happen in a young person's life as they get out of high school and they get out of college and they can't get a job. Well, you know, Chris, I believe you, you and I, certainly I are, tend to be optimists. I worry whether others will be having this same conversation, hopefully you and I won't, yeah. five years from now, 10 years from now, where well, we're going at a country at a time when we're dealing with disability, racial justice, immigration, no, job no. paradigm change. What's your, what's your final word about, hopefully optimistic, where are we going and what do we still need to do? I am optimistic. I, I, again, I think we have to find a way to incentivize private employers, because I, I know for a fact that once people with disabilities get into the workforce and do the job that they were hired to do, people start looking at them differently than they did. That discrimination starts to disappear. I really think if we can figure that part out, 
how do we force private employers to hire more people with disabilities? Do we do it by incentivizing them? Do we do it by, you know, having some, you know, quota? These are all the things that other groups have faced already to some degree. Um, we're not there yet with people with disabilities. There's no Supreme Court cases saying you can't affirmative action for people with disabilities. So while there isn't, I think we should use this opportunity to use affirmative action and incentivizing to get people into the workforce. Well, be careful what you wish for. Yesterday, as you know, the United States Supreme Court granted cert in the educational affirmative action cases. I know, um, I know. And I that's what I, I see them starting to do away with. I hope they don't, but it seems like the indication is that they they will. Um, but that's why I think that we need to do something now to to use those mechanisms to get people into the people with disabilities into the workforce before we're told you can't do that anymore either. Because we've never been told that. No one's ever been told that. And so there are, you know, like in the federal government, there's the Schedule A program. There's, there's certain things we can actually do, I think, to incentivize employers. And every it's everything from, you know, paying them, outright paying them, having the government pay them to hire more people with disabilities. Well, Chris, I'm going to vote for you when you run for Congress in okay. Boston. All right, great. Uh, for me, the mark of an amazing interview is just a seamless discussion with a friend that I learned and I'm sure our listeners learn so much. And if we don't have these conversations, so much is lost from generation to generation. But I, I so thank you for sharing your time with our wide audience and your insights in this area. It is an honor to speak with you. I know we'll speak again soon. And thank you on behalf of all of us. And I'd like to now please turn it back to Barry. Thank you, Peter. Christine, thank you. What a wonderful interview today. Thanks for sharing your time and uh, your, your interests and your passion with us. Listeners, you can access all ADA Live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts and resources at our website, adalive.org. You can listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live to your mobile device and your podcast app by searching for ADA Live. If you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center and the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University in collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. As a reminder, you can also listen to our companion podcast, Disability Rights Today, your source for in-depth discussion on important court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can learn more at disabilityrightstoday.org. See you next episode. Yeah,